It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Many are familiar with the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, according to today's guest, David Kessler, there's a sixth stage. David is an expert on healing and loss and author of several books, including On Grief and Grieving, which he co-authored with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. In his new book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, he journeys beyond the classic five stages and explains that it's finding meaning that can transform grief into a more peaceful and hopeful experience. David is the author of five best-selling books. His first book, The Needs of the Dying, is a number one best-selling hospice book that received praise by Mother Teresa. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for joining us again. I'm so thrilled to be with you, Joan. So, David, the last time you were here, we talked about the five stages of grief. So let's begin there. Can you briefly explain each of these five stages to us? Sure. In 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross first identified the five stages of dying, that she noticed that people who were dying would go through these uh, different areas, patterns, responses they would have to their life ending. And they would, over the years, get casually adopted, sometimes rightfully, wrongfully for grief. And in uh, about 2000, Elizabeth and I started talking about we should really formally adopt them from dying to grief. And that ended up being our book together on grief and grieving. So the stages are denial, the I can't believe this is happening. I just can't believe this is happening is one of our first responses. And I want to just caution people right up front that when we talk about these stages, Elizabeth never meant for them to be a map of grief or exactly linear or you have to follow them in this way. They're supposed to be very organic. So but people will notice when they hear the news Whatever it may be, whether it's a flat tire, a divorce, a loved one dying, we have that sense of, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Please don't let this be real. So the denial actually helps us cope with that news that you couldn't take in the pain of a loved one dying in one day. So denial helps us pace it out. Then we talk about anger as the next stage. We get angry that they've died. And I always tell people, Anger is pain's bodyguard. Underneath that anger is pain and sadness. And then we have bargaining. Bargaining is all the what-ifs and regrets. If only I'd called. If only I hadn't called. If only we'd taken them to a different hospital. If only we'd seen another doctor. Whatever it may be. And then depression. And when we talk about depression, I just like to point out we're talking about situational depression. Someone has died and that's depressing in itself, or someone's divorced us, and that's depressing in itself. And it's interesting, we don't use the word sadness anymore. So I think when people hear that depression is like a stage, they think of clinical depression, where it's really more about sadness. And then the last stage is acceptance. And, you know, there's not one big acceptance. It's not like, oh, I found it, it was in the top drawer. It's, you have to find a little acceptance 
when you arrange the funeral. You have to find a little more when you go to the funeral. So it's lots of different acceptances over time. So those are the stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. What's interesting about these stages, David, and and you mentioned it, people tend to think they're linear, and then they tend to think, okay, I grieved and I'm done with it. But I know in my own life, I'm nine years out from tremendous loss. And while the loss no longer consumes me every minute of every day, I do find myself still going through these stages. I, I might be in the supermarket and all of a sudden I'll start to say, I can't believe that I'm divorced. So it, it they keep replaying, but in, in my experience, there it's in a different degree than it was in intensity in the beginning. But I think it's very important to note that it's not a, you know, one and done type of thing. You go through it and now you're healed. Absolutely. And I think the idea of acceptance got misinterpreted that it had a finality that Elizabeth and I never wanted it to to have. There's no, oh, I'm acceptance, I'm done. Exactly like you said. That's not how it works. David, you say that these five stages needed to be updated, and now you write about meaning. Can you tell us about the sixth stage and its significance? Sure. Well, I think that I I certainly wanted to clear up a lot of the myths that we talked about, the five stages, and that, you know, they're not a map. And the reality is the stages really reflect where we are. We don't follow the stages. You know, it's a very organic process. You know, Elizabeth just would always say, would be, so she would get asked, what stage is this person? And Elizabeth would go, stop with the stages, just meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. So it's a very organic, fluid thing. But I felt like I had thought about years ago, Victor Frankel's work, and I thought about how, what, what happens after we accept? Is that it? And I thought, we are a generation that I don't think we want to stop at acceptance. I think we want more. And so I had often toyed with this idea of, is there something after acceptance? Is there meaning? And what does meaning look like? And I had just thought about a lot of those concepts and had jotted them down thinking someday this might be a book. And over time, I would, you know, here and there write something about meaning that I would find. And then a few years ago, I have two sons and my younger son, unexpectedly, tragically died. And when David died, I canceled everything and was obviously just heartbroken and stopped in my tracks. And I took time off. I canceled things. I was sitting in my office one day, just putzing around, just in this deep pain. And I ran across all these papers that I had written about meaning. And I looked at it and I went, yeah, like that's going to help with this pain. Right. And I started reading, and something shifted. The pain didn't go away, but I was adding meaning to it. I was adding a cushion to it. And I thought, this is something I want to put together to help people. So that's the new book, and that's and I'll tell you, I was just so honored that the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross family and foundation gave me permission to add a stage to her iconic stages. So I'm, I'm really grateful to them for that. And so I, I am teaching people how to find the sixth stage, the stage of meaning, because I think we do want more. 
Well, I, before we began this conversation, I had joked with you that this book is the story of my life, but in reality, it is. I've lost both of my parents. I've lost my sister. I've lost my brother. I've been divorced. And really, it was in finding meaning from all of those losses that I've been able to heal and move forward and and do the work that I do. I, I remember the morning that my father was dying, my parish priest said to me that you have to find the blessing in every situation. And like you, I, I remember saying, well, where's a blessing in this? You know, this is horrible. But it really is in trying to figure out the blessing, the meaning, what you can do or how you can transform that pain into something that can make a difference. That, I, I agree. I think that that's the key to moving forward. And something you said is very important that I want to make a distinction for people because some people will say, my loved one was murdered. Like, where's the meaning in that? Mm-hmm. The meaning doesn't live in the death. The meaning is not in the tragedy itself. The meaning is what we do after. The meaning is what we make out of it. So someone, you know, our loved one's dying or someone divorced, it it may never be meaningful. But what we do after, because we love them, because we love their life, because they touched us, because they were here, or maybe there was a tragic death and we want to make sure no one else dies that way. So we do things to prevent that. But there's a million ways we can make meaning. And like you found organically, I try to let people know we talk so much about post-traumatic stress. But the reality is post-traumatic growth occurs more often. And you were able to sort of do that naturally. And I wanted this book to sort of reinforce for those people who do this naturally and for others who are searching for a way in their pain to add meaning, to find that cushion, to be sort of a beacon for them. I believe it does come down to being a choice. You write, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And I know in my own life, I I came to a fork in the road. I was suicidal. I knew I could go in one direction to a very dark place Or I could go in a different direction and turn all of it around. And for me, it was a conscious decision. And and it's interesting. And as you saw, that's why I literally made a chapter called The Decision, because there is a place in us that we have to internally, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously make that decision. And I'll tell you, sometimes, and first of all, I just want to reiterate, it doesn't mean the pain's not there. It's not a canceling of the pain. There's no taking your pain away. I mean, you're always going to miss your parents. You're always going to miss your siblings or children. That, that's just going to naturally be there. But the suffering is what our crazy mind does and the blame and the blaming of others or self-blame or just the turmoil we can live in after a loss that really stops us from feeling the pure grief. And the pure grief is the pure love we had for them that still lives on. David, for someone who is stuck in grief, what's something that that person can do to move forward? Well, the first thing I tell people is you have to start with your feelings. You have to feel your feelings. In a strange way, we're such a productive society. We try to get around the pain or get through the pain. One of the things I wrote about that was so brilliant, I'd never known this, is buffaloes, When they sense a storm is approaching, they don't run from the storm. They run into the storm. And instinctively, they seem to know that if you run into the storm, 
you will get through the storm quicker. Whereas if you avoid the storm, you're sort of dealing with it longer. So in a lot of ways, that's symbolic of our pain, that the pain you have, you're going to have to feel. And when you try to avoid it and run from it and stuff it and get around it, it doesn't get dealt with. So it's brutal. There's no way around it. You have to feel your feelings. And people get so afraid there's a gang of feelings or if they stop crying, they'll never be able to stop. But what we find is if you feel your feelings, then you'll feel that feeling fully and then another one will come and then another one will come. And as you begin to feel those feelings, just like you said at the beginning, the intensity will begin to change. The frequency will begin to change. They're not going away completely, but things will begin to shift. And then sometimes people will say, you know, something like, well, I'm dealing with the pain, but I can't go on. There's no really going on. Life's not continuing anymore. And I'll say, you are living, but you're not really engaged in life. I mean, I have a thing sometimes I'll say to people, when you're home alone, I want you to start noticing your toenails are still growing. Your fingernails are still growing. Your hair is growing. Unfortunately, if we get older, it grows in the wrong places, but it's still <laughs> growing. And if life is continuing, it needs your engagement. It needs you to be engaged in it. And instead of shutting down after our loved one died, what if we feel the pain fully whenever it comes up, but continue to live in their honor, continue to live a life that they would feel good about us living. And I think that's one of the keys is making that decision and realizing life is continuing, but for us to be fully alive, it does need our participation. And I think that's where your stage of meaning comes in. I know when I was at my darkest point, I didn't see a future. I didn't know how I would provide for my children. I didn't know how I would move forward by myself. And that was in the precise moment, and I don't, when I say the precise moment, I don't mean it was 10 o'clock on a Tuesday, but I mean that was the time of my life where I decided I need to live for my kids, so that was my first meaning, but then I need to find out how I can take all of this pain and maybe help somebody else so they never feel the way that I did. Right, right, exactly. And, you know, the other thing I've learned is helping is healing. The more we help, the more we heal ourselves. And some people, when they hear that, I'll say to people in their second year of grief, you know, and one of the things I also talk in the book about is busting that one-year myth, that myth that like after one year, the grief is over. Right. I wanted people to know that's not true. But to really understand, you know, when you get to your second year, if you can just reach out to someone newly bereaved or you be the one that calls them, that you'll find it becomes healing for you too. David, do you think that social media has had an impact on the way we grieve? Do you think it's taken away the human connection of comfort? It's done two things. It's like everything, it's good and it's bad. On one hand, social media is the new town square. And I love that I can have a Facebook group that if you're awake and alone in the middle of the night and you're grieving, there's someone you can find in Australia to talk to who's wide awake because it's the middle of their day. Mm-hmm. I love that aspect, that it can be our town hall. And if your relatives are not um, wanting to talk anymore about your loved one who died, someone online probably does. That's the good side. It connects us. The downside is 
it can also disconnect us that, you know, we talk about these days, people die. And what do you see on Facebook or Instagram? Thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. That's it. Thoughts and prayers. Like there's no showing up anymore. There's no coming over. What about the casserole? What about making sure they're fed? What about making sure they're loved? There's just a human element that's missing. For those who have a loved one or a friend who is grieving and does want to have the human connection, we often don't know what to say or do. Is there a general rule for how we should comfort another? Are there things we should avoid saying? Absolutely. So the concept is you want to witness their grief. You don't want to fix it. Number one, they're not broken. They're in grief. So you want to witness it. You want to say things like, I don't know what you're feeling, but I just want you to know I'm here with you. Uh, I want to share a favorite story of your loved one. I want to tell you what they meant to me and engage about them and sit with your friend who's in grief in their pain. What you don't want to do is point out the silver lining. You don't want to compare it with your loss. You don't want to tell them how lucky they are that the person died quick or that they didn't suffer. Or, you know, we try to tell people the upside. And when you're dealing with loss, there just isn't an upside. David, if you could sum it all up, what would be the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I would like them to know that in this lifetime, we get a package deal. We get love. And unfortunately, we get loss. And the reality is, when you can find the meaning, you can see so much more. I mean, the reality is, my heart just aches for my son who died, and for my parents who have died, and I am going to miss them all forever. And I also want to live a life that honors them, that someday if I see them again, and I hope I do, and they say to me, wasn't life great? Wasn't earth wonderful? Wasn't food great? What did you do after we died? I don't want to say, well, I shut down because of you. I want to tell them the amazing things I did because of them. And I want to find a way to, to, you know, fully grieve and fully live. And I think the sixth stage can help us do that. The book is Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. If you would like to get more information about David and his work, you can visit grief.com, or as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list. David, thank you so much for being here and for discussing ways that we can move through and heal from grief. Oh, thank you, Joe. This is Conversations with Joan. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.